Welcome to The Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 57, Continuous Improvement and Designing a Remote Workplace Culture with Gustavo Rossetti. Where do we work? It is one of the biggest questions facing leaders today. It doesn't look like employees are flocking back to offices, and remote and hybrid work sure seem like they're here to stay. Does that mean we can't have the culture we want? In his book, Remote Not Distant, Gustavo Rossetti argues that leaders could design a culture for remote work, and by the way, that includes a lean culture. Gustavo Rossetti, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Hello, I'm super glad to be here, Bella. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm glad you're here too. And it's kind of funny that we're doing this. We're talking about remote workplace culture today. And uh, like the world is today, we're in different places. Um, I'm in Philly, as I usually am. Where are you today? I'm in Chicago. So You're in so Chicago far. today. So, <laughs> so an, hour, an hour difference, but you know what a, what a difference in how people look at the world, right? So uh, tell us, Gustavo, about yourself and how did you you come to write your book? Absolutely. So a long story short, uh, I mean, I've, I've been working for over 30 years with different corporations consultant, mostly on the innovation and marketing world. And lately, in the past five years, I decided to open my own firm to focus on culture. And people ask me why. Why did this search? And basically... I spent most of my career trying to help companies come up with better ideas, with better solutions. And my realization was that they had more talent, more ideas than they want, they needed. The problem was their culture. The culture wasn't letting those ideas see the light of day. So I decided I want to focus on that. And, and through the past five years, I've been designing different frameworks, different tools. And that's one of the triggers that I wrote my book to share all those learnings, all those tools, frameworks with it with the world, so to speak. That's great. And, you know, from, from our perspective in the lean community, I think that's a realization we've really been coming to over the past uh, several years as well. You know, that we started out, I think, in lean really looking at uh, tools and looking at outputs at com- at, from companies that we thought were lean companies, whatever that means to us. And it took us a while to realize that those outputs and those tools were really artifacts that were created by a culture that allowed innovation and ideas to flourish. And I, and now we really are you know, working on that idea. How do we then create those types of cultures in different types of organizations? And now we're in this situation where that like the core tenet of uh, lean thinking, one of the core tenets of lean thinking, which is to go to the gamba, go to the actual place where work is happening and see what is happening has become in many cases impossible because we're working remotely. 
you know, we're not all working on site, um, whether we're in an office, even, even factories have managers and people who are working remotely. So this is what you've really been um, focused on for the past few years. So, so tell us, tell us about that. First of all, I'd love to know, what is your definition of culture? That's a great question. So we will start from the same page. I think there are many ways to approach culture. For me, it's understanding that it's a system. So it's not one thing, but lots of things that are connected and correlated to each other. Um, there are three key elements that comprises culture. On one hand, we have the emotions. So how do we feel? How do we feel about our workplace, our team, our managers, our colleagues, the work we do? Then there's also the mindset, that lens that we use to filter reality. So do we have a very optimistic mindset, defeated mindset, or maybe aggressive? What's the filter that we use to see our organization or critical or optimistic? And last but not least, the behavior, which is what matters the most. How do we behave in our workplace? Do we actually do what we promised that we were going to do or not, for example? Right. It doesn't. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. It doesn't behavior then drive some of the other pieces, right? I mean, these three are integrated: emotions, mindset, and behavior. That uh, I mean, you know, you can you can be emotional, which will can drive your behavior, or you can behave in a certain way, which can over time change how you feel about things. I guess change your mindset and change your your emotions, but it's. They're, they're, they're all interwoven, right? Absolutely. And then there are different theories that you can you can change behavior and then people are going to feel better or the other way around. It all depends on what you're trying to tackle. You know? For example, if people achieve something, for example, they complete a, a project, then they're going to feel better. But sometimes they get stuck in certain emotions. And if you don't tackle those emotions, if you don't address them collectively, then people are not going to be able to see the beyond that no matter how good news they're they're getting they're not going to uh, celebrate them yeah i mean i've certainly seen situations i mean i know i've even felt it myself that when a project comes to an end that you know you celebrate that but then it that project can become part of your identity right or a role that you've been in can become part of your identity if that changes which it will when when something ends then you can feel really, I think, kind of lost, right? And so, um, you know, the culture could support that or not support that. Wow. Absolutely. And I think there's, for example, we talk about mindset. There's one mindset that gets in the way in most organizations, which is perfectionism. So when you have managers that want everything to be perfect, so on one hand, they encourage people to innovate, try new things, make mistakes, but then when people screw up, then they're punished. So that perfectionism in many companies, it's a hindrance. So we need to address it. You're laughing. <laughs> no, no, I, no, I, I, you know, that's also that, I mean, that is really part of what we talk about. And Lean, we talk about, you know, that you have to be able to essentially do experiments, right? And when you do an experiment, it's an experiment. You don't always know what the result's going to be. Um, and success should be defined as you learn something, not that things went the way you expected, right? Because most of the time when we make that prediction of how things are going to work, 
you know, we are making a prediction based on incomplete information. So things are going to be, as you said, screwed up, right? Our people are going to make decisions based on information that's different from, you know, what they really should know. And so things, things are going to get screwed up. And, you know, certainly it's true, right? If somebody, if somebody then gets punished for that, they're going to be much less likely to want to try that again. It has to be safe for them. But Gustavo, this is something that I, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in this in this personally because I'm very interested in what happens to the people who are in the middle managers, right? Because a CEO is in one place, they have to deal with Wall Street and they have to deal with their board. But the people who are in the middle, the middle managers, I feel like they're sometimes like, they're all about control, right? And so for them to allow the people working for them to make mistakes, to not be perfect, puts them in a really difficult place. So they, what's what's the mindset that they that they should start to try to develop then? And how do you do, how do you get a mindset? That's a great point. I think that first they need to let go. I think to your point, one one of the places where culture goes to waste is middle management. So usually CEOs tend to have a clear vision of what that culture looks like but then that vision dilutes across the organization. We can blame managers, but also it's important when we talk about culture, what do we reward? What do we punish? And the problem is in order to accomplish most of the goals when it comes to innovation, when it comes to coming up with better ideas, we need people to collaborate across teams. But then those managers, their reward system, it's about functional. So they're gonna reward if they meet the goals, if you're in production or marketing or sales, they have vertical goals. So how can we encourage people to collaborate across the board when those managers, their bonus, their performance depends on their goals, not on the collaboration goals? Yeah, that's very typical, I think, in, a, in, in most uh, organizations. Um, so even organizations that intend to have cross-functional project teams or intend to work cross-functionally set forth goals through those functional pipelines, right? So that you're not, so that, but at the same time, they do expect the project teams to develop, to, to deliver across, they have to deliver across functions. Everybody on the functions got to be pulling in the same direction, but the functions pulling them in a different direction. And then you have team leaders, right? I'm sure you've seen this. You have team leaders who do not have functional responsibility. Their responsibility is only to the project. So they've got to be influencing all of these different functions, all of whom may have a somewhat different culture. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, you mentioned different cultures, so that opens the door to another very juicy topic, which is subcultures. But before that, I mean, I think that we need to think in terms of alignment, you know? So uh, one of the obsessions in our, about the management culture is alignment and then collaboration, right? Uh, uh, usually when we talk about alignment, people think about aligning the troops, like everyone going the same direction. While actually the first big or the biggest challenge when it comes to alignment is making sure that the words and the behavior of leaders and of managers, then it's aligned. And that's for me, you cannot align the troops, so to speak, when what you say and what you do is not aligned because people are gonna, it's like parent, uh, parenting, no? So if you tell your kids something, but then your behavior doesn't align, they're not gonna respect your words. 
And I think what this is one of the issues that we see a lot in different companies from Fortune 500 to startups, leaders say one thing, but then they reward something different. So then people say, you know what, what do we really stand for? What's our culture? I've seen that. I've definitely seen that in, in a number of organizations. And I think that's what you just said is, is so interesting and so critical. So it's about is the leader's behavior and the things that they're awarding or the things that they're allowing the culture to reward, is that actually lined up with what they're saying? So an example that that I've seen many times in a in a you know in a culture that is very um, deliverables focused and get the work done focused, which is what you know you kind of hope your organization <laughs> is going to be like, right? You want to you want to get those deliverables done, is saying things about work life balance, but at the same time sending emails or text messages on the weekend. Yeah. So if you do that as a leader, what you're saying is I'm going to stand up in the company meeting and say work life balance is very important to us and we want you to take your family time. But at the same time, if you're sending a, a message at, you know, 5 p.m. Sunday evening, you're actually undoing that. Right. And that might be sort of unconscious for the leader. They may be just that's buzzing through their mind and they want to get that question answered right away or make sure that things on their desk or in their inbox on Monday morning. So what does that take for the leaders to be able to see whether their actions and their words are aligned? First, I think you you nail it when you say unconsciously. I mean, because yeah, we can blame, sometimes we are in this culture that we blame employee, we blame leaders rather than try to, okay, how can we fix it? No, we get stuck into finger pointing, you know, especially in the consulting field, like who's the culprit? For me, I think that what you say is like, we need to create that awareness. And how do we do that? We do a very simple exercise, which is what are the behaviors that we reward and what are the behaviors that we punish? And we do this with teams first, and then with the leadership, and then we compare notes. And the oh, results are eye-opening. One thing that happened, and it's curious, it happened with three different companies on the same week. We were doing the same project, different companies, different size, two in US, one in Europe. And there was a common theme in which people felt that low performers were getting a pass. So people were not delivering and the leadership, the management was doing nothing. So basically they were rewarding low performance because they were letting it happen. But on their hand, they were punishing high performers because they were giving all the tasks that the low performers were in completing to the other. So basically they were making the high performers work more and more because they were delivering. So that's part of the inconsistency. And when we share this with you, they will say, no, this is not happening really. And we start giving them examples. I was, oh my God, we didn't notice it. So we did. Yeah. So that's it. So, <laughs> so it really was on, it really was unconscious. Yeah. I, I mean, I can, yeah. I can definitely see that. I mean, and I can see in the, in the example that, that, um, that I was talking about, I can see somebody really truly believing that they believe in, in work life balance and at the same time feeling pressure to have an answer by Monday morning and sending that text and not thinking about this is these are two really different things right I'm rewarding the person who actually picks up their phone and answers my text right and I'm going to be 
I, I may be punishing the person who doesn't pick up the phone and answer the text because I'll be hounding them first thing Monday morning and so, you know saying, why didn't you answer my text? So, so, and do that completely unconsciously. Just so it, it takes time for self-reflection then, doesn't it? And it, um, I think that exercise that you talked about is, is also very cool. You know, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's a way of holding a mirror up probably in both directions. Absolutely. I think that uh, to your point, there's a spectrum, no? So some leaders uh, say one thing and they don't care and then they uh, send email. There are some leaders that genuinely say, you know what? No, I thought that my team is not checking emails, so I just send it. But then, you know, there's an expectation. The moment you receive the email, the moment you heard that notification, you, hey, I need to do something. It's my boss. I'm not going to ignore it. That takes us also to a very important part, especially in a hybrid culture, which is having clear expectations. So for example, when it comes to communication, what's the agreement? What's the a, a expected turnaround to respond to an email, to respond to a Slack message, to respond to a text? I think that one of the things that we encourage, and I include this in the book among other tips, it's make it explicit. Define your agreements with your team, what's expected, when it comes to communication and then it wants clear if I can just, yeah, I receive an email on Saturday or Sunday, but I can wait until Monday. Well, and that takes having that conversation then, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, um, that means that you have to be inviting people's input, right? So that's another important piece of it, isn't it? In establishing culture, it's not just top down, it's it has to be a two-way conversation Absolutely. is that hard for um, people uh, yes <laughs> there's a it, i always say who owns and actually i'm writing and finishing an article on that that's funny which is who owns culture you know and 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 ownership has two many but let's say basically two meanings when it comes to culture one is who own it as a who's the final a, a, a responsible who has the final say, which is, of course, the leaders, but then ownership also has to do with no one needs to sell me the culture because I feel it's mine. I, I, I'm part of it. I help co-design it. I help a, a, a bring it to life. So I think that's the hard part that leaders have the ultimate responsibility, but they don't own culture. Culture is something that everyone creates. So the behaviors of all the employees shape the culture. If I'm at the call center, the way I serve and, and, and deal with a customer, that defines the company culture for that person, not what the CEO shares with Wall Street or the world. And that's mm -hmm. where you need to realize if people don't feel that they own, they're going to screw your company culture like this. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, so they're creating it as they're doing their work, and, which means then that it's not a fixed thing. It's absolutely it. Yeah. So as people come in and out of the organization, as the organization changes its its goals or the environment around the organization changes, then the culture needs to change, too. So I think of organizations, Gustavo, that, that do this sort of thing like once a year, they'll get the HR lead to sit down with the leadership team and they'll have a discussion about culture and they kind of decide what you know, where they're going to go, maybe they'll write some values and they'll have a lovely event and um, it will feel really great. And then they'll kind of go back to real life and the real world. 
and um, hopefully with some communication of what happened in that. But that's not sufficient. Then you're saying you, you say it, as the environment is constantly changing and the people are constantly changing, then it's leaders and everybody else is going to have to keep doing this, right? I'm, I'm not in necessarily in offsites with you, though that probably is a great idea too. No, absolutely. I think that's a, one of the things that we provide is tools to basically like frameworks to encourage those conversations. So the same way like uh, teams do retrospectives to talk about how a particular project went or a particular product and try to improve it, well, we need to have culture retrospectives. So in the past 30 months, what's working, what's not working, what are the issues that we uh, identify, what, what action needs to be taken? No? So I think that uh, culture is a wicked problem. It's like innovation, you never stop solving it. The moment yeah. you fix something, there's something else that's gonna show up and you have to take care of it. Yeah, and wicked problems, yeah, they're hairy, right? They've got They've got tails and feet and teeth and claws and and uh, you never know you never know exactly where where tackling that is is going to take you. But that is a really cool idea. I think that's a I love that idea of a culture retrospective, right? Mm -hmm. Because then that wouldn't that give you the chance then to talk about maybe some elephants in the room, uh, you know, to do what I like to call an elephant roundup, to um, you know, to to say, hey, you know, this thing happened and and this this person behaved in this way and that didn't work for us how do we how do we handle that differently next time what might be we do differently next time yeah you'd have to have a lot of trust to have that don't you have to have the trust in place first or does that come out of doing that kind of work it's a i mean it, it's a chicken or egg situation right people uh -huh. always say like okay first we need to build the trust in order to have the conversations but you build trust by talking about the things that are uh, uncomfortable. You mentioned the elephant in the room. We use a metaphor, which is the stinky fish. We adapted Hyper Island started with this idea of the stinky fish. So the problems that if you don't address them early on, they start to rot and then they come to stink. And, up, and actually they, everything that's on the fridge gets contaminated, you know, the milk, the butter, whatever. So we adapted that metaphor from a hyper island and we created like a tool that's called Uncover the Stinky Fish. It's a stinky tool. And uh, I'm sorry, a <laughs> visual tool, not stinky. <laughs> I couldn't get rid of the metaphor. So it's a visual tool that has four quadrants and invites leaders to reflect first on their own and then with others. No? So what's making you feel anxious? What are the past mistakes that we cannot get over with? And, and so on and so forth. And one thing that we do is we ask people to complete it on their own, but then we use the one, two, four, all like a facilitation from a liberating structures. Mm -hmm. So we pair leaders in teams of two so they can discuss their own stinky fish and try to come up with a shared fish. Shared uh, stinky fish, yeah. Exactly, merge another. So at the end, they start little by little talking about those things and a, a coming up with some interesting topics that we need to address. You know? So the conversations that usually we avoid, but we need to put them on the table. It's uncomfortable, but I always say it like, a, you talk about trust, trust happens uh, at an individual level, but also at a collective level. You know? So psychological safety is when the whole team provides a safe space for people to take risks. And, and I always say people, if you don't cross the line, if you don't start having uncomfortable 
conversations, how are we going to build that collective trust? You cannot wait for it to happen. You have to act in order to build it. So we often talk about the importance of leaders demonstrating vulnerability talking about when they've made mistakes admitting uh you know where they where they could have done better and um and the importance of that in allowing other people to do that but i can certainly think of situations and you what you're saying is is making me think of this where the leader may be very good at that but there may be somebody else in the room or on the zoom meeting whatever it is who is influential in the culture who is not allowing themselves to um you know to be that vulnerable or who is taking advantage of other people's vulnerability and that person then might in a way kind of undermine what the leader in the group is trying to do in in, in building this this um culture where you can actually talk about the stinky fish and get them thrown out i mean so so how do you what's the kind of conversation that you have with a group when you're studying this about about everybody moving to a place where they can where they can share that's a good point first of all i try to avoid the word the word vulnerability and i'm guilty uh -huh. of charge because i've used you see many times in many articles so it's not that i never did that but i came to realize that it creates a lot of defense, it, it triggers defense mechanisms from the leaders, you know, because it feels they associated to weakness, no? And ah. uh, so I try to focus into, you don't need to be perfect. Don't try to be the superhero. People don't expect you to be a superhero. So it's okay to admit that you don't know. When you don't have an answer, that's where we hire people, tell them. And, and model, I think that modeling the behavior of asking for help and saying in front of others, I don't know, it's critical. To your point, if the leader models the behavior, but it's just one person, you're not going to change that behavior. So you always need like two or three people to start modeling. So usually we coach who are, who are the other two people in the room that can behave like that. So the other can feel, oh, it's okay to do it. And it's okay to admit I don't have all the answers. Wow. Wow. That's, uh, that's really helpful. Yeah. So yes, and, and that takes the burden example, off the leader too, right? I mean, then the leader doesn't have to be the superhero, like you said. That the leader, the leader can be one of a group of people, and that's good for leaders to do that. So let's talk, Gustavo. Let's talk about remote, being remote and being hybrid, and what you are seeing in terms of being able to build culture when people are not seeing each other every day and you know in this environment of when i see somebody it's it's in sort of in back-to-back -back, um remote meetings what so what are you seeing what are you learning about this culture that's a great point i think that uh, before we jump into that we need to understand the fallacies that existed towards how culture was created in person because okay successful companies design culture with intentionality and in a hybrid or remote environment you need to be even more intentional so uh, the idea that impromptu water cooler conversations created a uh, creativity or culture uh, there's no piece of research that actually validates that there's a belief there's a yeah we always use that metaphor but there's not actually 
water cooler conversations used to be more exclusive. They weren't about building mm-hmm. a positive culture, but they were, you know what, the meeting after the meeting, gossiping about the person that's not there, uh, criticizing our manager rather than raising the issues in front of them so they can be aware. Uh, so that's the first part. I think that both in a in-person or presential kind of uh, culture or remote or hybrid, the companies that were able to build that strong culture were always intentional. So they don't think that ah, it's going to emerge organically by its own. Yeah, there are many organic things, but you need to set up the framework, certain uh, guardrails for that culture to emerge. So if you want the plants to grow, of course, they're going to grow in their own direction. They're going to grow as fast as they can, but you need to nurture that environment. You need to make sure that the soil is fertile, that you put in the right nutrients, that you know exactly what you want to grow, which plants you need want to grow. No? So there's need to be some intentionality. In today, I did a lot of research, not only prior to my book, but also doing while writing my book. And I talked to companies that were skeptical about remote. I will talk about companies that have always worked remotely, companies that shifted and became 100% remote, companies that are still struggling to say, hey, what's the new face of hybrids gonna look like? And the ones that are doing a great job is those that understand that you need to design culture intentionally. You cannot be in back-to-back meetings because no culture, regardless where you're working from, is not gonna uh, succeed. Second, Location is not just the point, but it's about flexibility. You know, how we redesign our work schedules, how we understand that flexibility is critical. Let You mentioned the top-down. It's about understanding that teams need to define their own uh, uh, work arrangements. So we cannot have a one-size-fits-all approach. Pre-pandemic, everyone worked nine to five, five, you know, could be nine to eight, whatever. During the pandemic, companies were forced to work all remotely because they weren't, mm-hmm. there wasn't an option. Now that we can choose, companies are trying to find what size fits so, and that's a mistake. It's a time to reinvent what worked before the pandemic, what worked during the pandemic, and how can we create a more flexible work environment where people can be happier, can do greater work, can be more uh, motivated. So that's, that's really interesting. And I think that, idea that somehow that we can like all go back to nine to five I don't think it was ever going to come back right so once once people had had to have that time in the middle of the day to be with their kids who were doing online schooling right um all the other things that they needed to do during the day and were, were perhaps working in the evening or early mornings or whenever they were they were doing their work it was going to be very hard to get everybody to jump back into that box anyway, right? Because people have discovered, you know, it's actually nice to be able to go for a walk in the middle of the day, right? Or it's it really is good to be able to pick my kid up from school and have that first after-school conversation where they're going to tell me, you know, things that I would not hear about at the dinner table, right? So people, it's going to be very hard for people to get back. And at the same time, it's true, isn't it, that, that teams are becoming even more distributed globally, that, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that you would be working only with the five or six people or 10 people, whatever, that are in your office or your your plant or your lab, that actually flew out the window a while ago, you know, that we're working, in many cases, we're working globally, which means we're working with people in different time zones. And yet we still have this idea of 
at least in the US, right? The eight hour day, the 40 hour work week. Um, and as if there's some magic in those numbers. What are the kinds of things that help leaders understand the difference between people sort of putting in hours and people um, getting their deliverables done at the, at the best time for them? What What's standing in the way of that? Uh, trust. Trust, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Definitely. I think that the idea of presentism, no? so companies like to, managers were in this model that I, I need to see my people working and you know never be the the last to arrive the, the first to leave you know that kind of stuff because send lots of emails uh, look busy look tired because then it feels that you're a, a good employee that's a that's stupid that's ineffective but that's the mindset that we've been operating you know, under for the past you know, decade or two more and, than that now, more than that yeah yeah i stopped counting <laughs> And to your point, we need to focus more on the outcome. So what does it matter? I don't care where you work from, how many hours, what's your schedule, but are you doing great work? Are you delivering what you need to deliver? Because we have many people that are busy and looking busy and, and, and actually they get rewarded by that, but then they don't do much. They don't contribute much to the team or their work is crappy. So it's not about how many times, but going back to trust, if, when the pandemic hit the world, leaders had to trust employees because they didn't have a choice. So people had to go, you know, especially companies that were really reluctant about privacy and, and, and confidential information. Imagine people working from home with whatever connectivity, no secure kind of a system in place. And they had to trust them. And most companies not only survived, but many actually thrived. There's a lot of research that shows that productivity and 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 work work placing happiness engaged increased sorry engagement as well increased, but then now that we have a choice, managers go back to their default behavior, which is a lack of trust, and they want people back not because it's more effective because there's no reason that it's more effective, but because they want to control, they want to see people working. And just one thing I want to clarify, I'm not against the office by any means, so my, that's not mm -hmm. my point. It's a, I, and that's one thing I'm very clear. If you can see the cover, they have like two planets with a ladder connecting them. My proposition is about bringing together the best of both worlds, but being meaningful. You know? So don't just tell people go three days to the office. For what? What's the purpose? Even, so maybe you need to spend a whole a week at the office because you're running a sprint and you want people to be focused. So define the work, define the needs, and then define what's the right place and the right time to do the work. So you asked before about how we build culture. Well, the companies that work 100% remotely, they also bring people together from time to time. Yeah. But when they do so, they, not, they don't talk about work. They spend that time to build relationships, reconnect, reflect on culture, they don't talk about projects. So when they get together in person or they go out for dinner to celebrate, you know, it, it, something what happens today is that we're trying to build connection and work all together. And it's important to separate. When are we building relationships? When are we working? When we try to do both at the same time, then we, we fall short on, on, on both. That's very interesting because, because I, you know, I think of many situations I, in the past, I've worked with a lot of teams that were um, remote simply due to the fact that they were global teams. So people in, in different mm -hmm. countries around the world. 
And so when those teams will come together, they will come together for, you know, for a big event such as, um, you know, a design session or a toll gate that they had to that they had to achieve. And then they would tack on top of that. Well, well you know, we'll do we'll go bowling one night or we'll, we'll go out to dinner. But that was always after you'd done a full day of probably what was very mentally taxing work. Right. Um, And so you go through all of this stuff during the day, you end up, I always find those things because I'm, believe it or not, a bit of an introvert. So that stuff kind of saps my energy. (laughs) And now we're going to go out to dinner and we're going to get to know each other. Well, you know, at this point, I'm tired. (laughs) I want to go back to my hotel room and and call my husband and, you know, find out what things, you know, what's going on at home. So that's very interesting. So to, to deliberately get people together for the purpose of getting to know each other, not on top of additional um, additional work that you need to get done. Absolutely, and that doesn't mean that they also might get together because they need to kick off a huge project. That's okay, but right, right, obviously, yeah. Go to the the collaboration software company. They decided to go fully remote. They were an in person. Then they adapted, and then they they did so well that they said to basically embrace the full remote approach moving forward. And one thing that they do is they understand when we say bring together, you don't need to bring together the whole company because that's not feasible. That's very expensive. And and also logistically wise, it is complicated. But at a team level, you can create those connections. So what they do, for example, because they're saving a lot of money in terms of space rental, and, 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 and what they do is they bring together teams in a region, let's say, for example, near Philly, and they choose one cause that they want to support and everyone gets together in person to do some a, a, a activity and, and help I don't know, go and work in a food bank or something like that sponsored by the company. So they bring the people together. They have a purpose. They don't just, hey, let's meet and have fun. They're going to accomplish something together and the company decides to help them, support them with some budget because they realize, hey, I'm not going to keep all the money I'm saving because I no longer have offices. So that's smart in that sense. Wow, that's great. So, so, and again, it's about that deliberate building of the culture. It's about, about I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this deliberately, intentionally, so that uh, the result will be that people will will start to build create relationships, have something in common with each other that they, you know, that they might not have otherwise if, if all we did was was only work together. That's great. Gustavo, you, your book is Remote Not Distant. Tell us, tell us about where you can get the book and uh, what your, uh, what your um, hope is for this book. I mean, you can get the book in most retailers, mostly Amazon, because they dominate 70, 80%. Mostly on Amazon, yeah. <laughs> now, well, they manage most of the sales and, and it comes in three formats. So Kindle, a, a paperback and hardcover. But then it's also available in, in IndieBound, which is an indie set of libraries. Books a Million, Walmart, Barnes and Nobles and many other retailers. And I'm starting getting some orders from small libraries, especially in the US, which is great to start like getting That's great. smaller cities. That's great. And, and, yeah. And expanding distribution. Yeah, definitely. And uh, the purpose of the book, to be honest, I was working on a 
culture design book, and then I switched kind of the focus in the middle of the pandemic. And why I wrote it is because uh, I am a true believer that we cannot uh, uh, create change just on our own. So I have a team of people, consultants that work with me, but no matter how much we, how many clients we take, how much we do, we cannot uh, uh, create the impact that we like to do. So I want to equip, my book is not just about insights research, but comes with a five-step framework for people to rethink and redesign their hybrid culture and lots of free tools that they can download and also activities that are very simple to implement. So I want to make sure that I basically spread everything I, I practice, but also everything I learned from my research so more people can start moving their culture in the right direction. So that's kind of my goal. If we do that, uh, I, I, there are people that start getting their copies, posting them on, on LinkedIn. I say, well, that's happy. But then one, one colleague uh, posted, hey, in our company, we're starting having more meaningful conversations about how we switch collaboration. And that for me was, wow, that's what I want. I want not to sell book. I want people to start using it. That's great. That's great. So, and you've been very generous in, in, in this podcast and sharing real advice. And, um, and so, um, and you, and the book is all about that. It, it's, it's real, it's based on research and um, you've got, you know, there's these five steps that, that people can follow um, and, and uh, they can find you on LinkedIn, right? If they want to talk about it. Absolutely. I'm very active on LinkedIn and also on Twitter, not as much as on LinkedIn, but my handle on Twitter is Gas Grassetti. But if you put my first and last name, you're going to find me there on either LinkedIn or Twitter as well. Oh, that's that's great. Wow. Gustavo Rossetti, tell me, what would be your one piece of advice for a young person studying out? Um, I think that uh, listen to what people have to say, learn from that, but don't take their answers as the only kind of solution. Uh, and also understand that you're in a, I tell this to my kids that are, what is 23, 22, and they are 19. They're starting their careers and I say, you know what, you're in a midst of a huge transformation that we are still trying to protect the things, the way things used to be, but no longer serve us, but because we are, that's how we, how we experience it. Many people are trying to preserve that model that's already broken and you have the opportunity to start experimenting with new ways. So basically try to help your manager open up their head and their minds and, and see what's new. But also you need to find out, find out the answers. You know, it's kind of a, that, a, a transition point that is critical to understand. Wow. So be part of helping to make the transformation happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And run some experiments. And I tell you what, we in the lean community love to hear people talk about running some experiments. So, so thank exactly. you. Great advice. <laughs> I agree that it's all about experimenting. So I would say like a, my book, I put it like a, like a caution. This is not a silver bullet. I'm going to give you a framework uh -huh. and lots of experiments, customize them, create your own, but it's about test and try it and see what happens and throw what doesn't work, test another thing and keep trying. No? Perfect. That's great. Gustavo Rossetti, thank you so much for traveling with me to the edges of lean. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me and thank you Ram, for joining this conversation. It was really honored to be part of this uh, podcast. Thanks. This is Bella Engelbach and I'd like to thank Gustavo Rossetti for being my guest on the edges of lean. 
What are your thoughts and insights about culture and remote work? We'd love to hear from you. Find Gustavo at fearlessculture.design where you can download the Culture Design Canvas or find him on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. And tell a friend about the edges of lean. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelberg with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.